All right, we pick up in Amos chapter four tonight. We mentioned last week uh, that, that Amos's presentations, his oracles, his communication to Israel is intentionally shocking. He's a master of rhetoric, of the ability to convince. And with that in mind, notice how he opens here in chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring that we may drink. Now notice here that he doesn't open by speaking to cows, but the cows of Bashan is a title here. Obviously, cows out in the fields are not the ones who oppress the poor. And when we notice here, it says, who say to their husbands, he's speaking here of a particular group of women. It is worth pointing out that uh, Bashan was a, a cattle town. It was known for quality uh, cattle, kind of like we have Wagyu beef today. Um, but here he speaks to uh, the women of that empire, of the cattle empire. He speaks to wealthy women, and he identifies them as cows. Now, this is common in biblical language. You may remember that John refers to his audience as a brood of vipers, right? It's intentionally strong language. Um, but here, the idea of identifying them as cows, which, to be honest, I've only heard in the mouth today of Gordon Ramsay. He's the only person I've ever heard call somebody a cow. Um, but the emphasis here is like their cows are known for being, you know, large and succulent and high quality, so are these women, right? He's making an intentional connection here, and it is not a kind one. The idea here is clearly one of wealth, but we need to recognize right off the bat that wealth isn't the issue at hand, okay? There are plenty of wealthy characters in the scripture who are also known as righteous. Poverty is not a sign of righteousness, nor is wealth a sign of, uh, of wickedness. However, notice here the origin of their wealth. It says that they are on the mountain of Samaria, I don't know about you, but where I grew up in Yakima, we had Scenic Hill, and that's the street where all the mansions were, right? In the same way, that's the idea here. They're up on the mountains of Samaria, but they oppress the poor and crush the needy. In other words, for these women, there's a direct correlation between their wealth and the poverty of their neighbors. It's not two coexisting but unrelated realities, but a proportionate change. They've made their money on the work, or specifically on the oppression of the poor. Then notice it says, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The idea here is not just one of having wealth, but it's one of opulence, right? It's not about how much is in the bank account or how much you make, it's about how you live. This is a, uh, a lifestyle of wealth, uh, and here they've basically turned their husbands, uh, you know, into waiters, bring that we may drink. And so he addresses these women, and notice what he says in verse 2. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness 
that behold, days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Now it's worth asking why Amos, in his accusations here, begins with the wealthy wives of Bashan. Um, but I would suggest to you that here, when we see the consequence, we find out the exact reason. Okay? It's because of the contrast between what is and what will be. Okay? These are the wealthiest of society that are the most protected against the greatest natural disasters. Right? Their pantries are full, their walls are secure, they're far up into the mountains, you know, they have security on hand, all of the opulence of wealth. But he says effectively, even these will not escape the judgment that is coming. Instead, he says that they will be taken away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's an incredibly degrading form of slavery, right? It's not just shackled and chained along the ankle, but actually sometimes they would run these hooks through the lip or through the ear, a very tender place for, um, you know, for the chain gang and march you out. And then notice they will go out through the breaches. So the idea here is that um, the city has fallen and they're going to be marched out through not the gates, but through the breaks in the walls. And then I can't help but read each one straight ahead as reminding us of cattle, right, that are being driven, which I think is the picture that's being addressed here. And it's important, and we will see this again, it's important here to see God's judgment as two things in the book of Amos. One is deserved, okay? and that's Amos's whole reason for existence is to explain that although this is a prosperous time and a very, as we'll see tonight, religious time, that judgment is coming and it is deserved. And then second, that it is inescapable. And we will see this over and over again tonight. And so the wealthiest may be the most wicked in this case, and they are also not going to escape the consequences. Now notice what it says in verse 4. Come to Bethel. Now, we should recognize this for what it is. Bethel is one of the primary places of worship. This is an invitation to come to church, okay? But Amos uses it here in a tongue-in-cheek way. This is like if somebody at the beginning of a festival in Israel was going to blow the trumpet and invite all of Israel to come for the festivities and the festivals. That is his tone here, but notice what it says. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and to multiply transgression. Okay. The invitation is come to church and sin. Right? Come to the festival and instead of worshiping or offering your sacrifices, multiply your wickedness. Notice, bring your sacrifices every morning. He says, be religious as you like. Bring a sacrifice every single day. One cow every day of the year, 365. He says, your tithes every three days. Now, in Israel, the tithe was gathered up every three years. And he says, escalate that. Bring it every couple of days. Bring in your money. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. 
publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel. Okay, so notice the second critique here is that they proclaim free will offerings, and he says publish them. Let everybody know. What is it that drives this religious activity here? It's the show. It's the glamour. It's the visibility. These are like the ones that Jesus criticized who love to give their offerings in front of the crowds with the blowing of a trumpet. Okay, their worship here, the size and significance of their sacrifices, the cost that they bore, they did to demonstrate that they were these types of people. They love to do these things, O people of Israel, declares the God. And then notice, the tactic changes here and God starts to review the things that he's done to get their attention. Now, as I already told you, in the days of Amos, the days of Jeroboam II, Israel, the northern tribes, is relatively at peace. It's relatively prosperous. And so these things are looking back over the history of Israel. But this is what he says. He says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Why are their teeth clean? Because of the lack of bread in all your places. Okay. So he used famine but you did not return to me, declares the Lord. He says, I also withheld rain from you. When there were yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain only on one city, and so send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. He says, I made the farming industry unreliable so that the rain didn't fall consistently or in abundance. He says, I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees. The locust devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. All of these that are being mentioned, um, as we've talked about before, come from the warnings of Deuteronomy. God says in Deuteronomy chapter 28, if you do not obey the covenant... These are the things that will come upon you, and it's effectively an advanced warning system. These things were to send the message that they were on the wrong track. Now, why is that important to Amos' audience? Because they are correlating the current blessing with God's approval. Okay. Like I said, this is not an atheistic nation that is turned away from God. They are abundantly religious. They believe that God is pleased, and he says, all right, you have prosperity now, but when you didn't, did you take that as a sign of my displeasure? And the answer is no. There's an inconsistency here, a convenient one and a common one in human beings that is very likely to assume that wealth or success is a sign of righteousness and that poverty or failure is a sign of circumstance, happenstance, explained away, okay? We don't always realize how significantly stubborn human self-righteousness is. But with Israel, it is, it's as if God is trying to get their attention and nothing is sticking. He continues here and he says, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me. And so here, it's failure in battle, 
right? That's what's being pointed to. But notice the touch point. He says, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt, right? It's not hard to remember what that connects with. It's the Exodus story, right? It's the 10 plagues that are put upon Egypt. But what is the problem with those plagues? The hardness of Pharaoh's heart. He sees miraculous judgment after miraculous judgment, and yet he will not, you know, cry uncle. And he says, you're behaving just like Pharaoh. Verse 11, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Right? The idea here is that people looked around and they just barely escaped tragedy. And they go, whew, and then they just go back to business as normal. Therefore, verse 12, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, O Israel. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Effectively, what God says here is, look, you don't seem to be getting my emails. I've been sending messengers ahead of me to get your attention, and you won't return my calls, so I'm coming in person. Now, as we'll see in the next chapter, the staggering reality of that is that Israel is all about wanting to meet with God, right? They're flooding the religious setters. They're all about the pilgrimages, but they don't realize that God is on his way and that a meeting with him is not going to be like they expect. Verse 13, for behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Basically, he says, let me introduce myself again. Let me remind you of who I am. You may remember that there's an occasion where the sons of Aaron don't take seriously the holiness of God. And they march into the tabernacle offering strange fire, and they encounter, in a very physical way, the holiness of God. They're consumed by the fire from the altar. Where there's the man, Uriah, who, um, who while the ark is being transported, right, the very seat from the Holy of Holies, while it's on the move, the ox is moving the cart, hit a bump in the road, and he reaches out to steady it, and he's instantly struck dead. Right? That's the God that they're forgetting here, the one that they supposedly want to meet with. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. He takes a tactic shift here. And he says, I'd like to sing you a funeral song. Okay. Now, modern Americans, that's not really something we do. But lamentation in the ancient world, and even in some cultures today, is a common part of funerals. If you want a perfect template for a lamentation, Read David's song about the fall of Solomon and Jonathan when they died in battle, right? He writes an honorary poem mourning their death. That's the format of what follows. But notice who's in the coffin, verse 2. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. Now, a lot of times when we think of the word virgin... Even in a biblical sense, we think of the concept of purity. And that is part of the metaphor in many places. That's not the point here, very clearly. 
right? The idea isn't here that a perfect and pure Israel has died. So why evoke this idea of virgin? In Hebrew, the word that's used here for virgin refers to somebody who has yet to marry, yet to consummate the marriage, yet to have children. The idea here is of the types of funerals we do not like to attend. It's not uncommon for us to attend a funeral for an 85-year-old, an 87-year-old person and celebrate a full life. But the death here is of the death of somebody who didn't yet live, right? It's someone who, in our language today, died too young. That's the idea here. It's one of tremendous grief. And then notice here, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. That's Eleanor Rigby, right? It's isolation. It's with no one around. It's not dying at the bedside with the family gathered around. It's out in a field unknown and unmourned. Okay. For thus says, verse 3, the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that went out, which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. He says, this is what's coming. It's going to be a slaughter. And this is exactly what happens, actually, when Assyria does come and does attack the northern tribes of Israel. They decimate Israel. And those who do survive aren't left behind, but are marched off and resettled in the land of Assyria. Okay. But remember, when Amos is writing this, that's still three decades away. Not long enough that the people he's talking to won't see it in their lifetimes. But it's not, you know, the next four-year political cycle or the one after that. It's a warning, you know, it's a warning with much time, but this is where things are headed. And then notice verse 4, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Do you hear the contrast? I just got back from a funeral from the future, and here is God's message. Not there is no hope, not there is no chance of turning around. It is there are two choices ahead of you. Seek me and live. Now, I want you to notice that word seek because we're going to see it over and over again. It's a key word to chapter 5. Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Now, if those names don't carry any significance for you, the primary significance in Amos' day is because these are places of religious pilgrimage. Okay? Bethel is one of the places where the two golden cows were set up by Jeroboam I for Israel to worship. It was an idolatrous center of worship that, that was laid out for the northern tribes, um, Gilgal is a place that has a long heritage and history, as we'll see, and was a popular um, pilgrimage because it was one of the places of, the, um, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, of the patriarchs. And then Beersheba, notice how it says cross over to Beersheba? That's because Beersheba is actually in Judah. It's in the southern tribes. In fact, it's beyond Jerusalem. Okay? And so they did long-distance pilgrimage as well. And so notice what he says here. He says, seek me and live, but stop looking in the places you're looking for me. Stop pilgrimaging the places where you will not find me. And what's interesting is, as he goes on here, he plays with those three places. 
Now, this is one of the things that I love about the Bible. The Bible, the authors of the Bible, the prophets that we find who speak in the Bible are all students of the Bible. And so, as I've mentioned, Amos is not just um, pointing to particular plagues or particular happenings and saying, I believe these were the wrath of God. He's reading Deuteronomy and saying, this is what God said would be his wrath, right? In the same way here, he takes these three places, Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba, and he plays with their historic significance and uses it to contrast it with the worship of his contemporaries, okay? And so it begins here with Bethel. Seek, verse 6, the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with none to quench it. For Bethel, see, he focuses on Bethel here. For Bethel, O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. And so his accusation here is the one that we've seen repeated over and over. It's injustice. It's about the mistreatment of the poor. It's about how, as we'll see, they, up, or they run their court systems in ways that bribes are common, that work for the powerful instead of those in need of vindication. But here he says, seek the Lord and live, and he describes a people who are unjust. In fact, he says they turn justice to wormwood. Wormwood is an incredibly bitter root, okay? And I found out um, recently that you wouldn't know that from handling it. It's actually relatively sweet-smelling. And it's not hard to imagine somebody encountering it and going, oh, this would be good to cook with, and then ruining their cooking because it's so bitter, okay? He says you turn justice, a good thing, as we'll see later, a sweet fruit that God expected into bitterness. He says you cast down righteousness to the earth. They're not just failing to be righteous, they're toppling righteous. They're knocking it over, okay? But then notice verse 8. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, and who turns deep darkness into the morning, and darkens the day into the night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate. Wait a minute. Do you notice how verse 8 starts an idea and never finishes it? It says, he, and it sings about this God who does all these things. It says, the Lord is his name. But if you just cover up verses 8 and 9, you'd never know they were missing. Look at how much context there is between 7 and 10. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, they hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Most commentators believe that verses 8 and 9 are not original to Amos. It's an ancient Israeli hymn. This is the God they worshipped, portrayed lyrically. Maybe even this is one of the songs they sung at Bethel. But notice what's so striking about the God who's portrayed here. Look at verse 8. He who made the Pleiades and Orion. Now, two things. One, obviously the names that the Jews had for the constellations are different than ours. Um, but these are our names. These are things we're familiar with. You could find these on a star chart. Second, the significance of these seems to be that they are seasonally visible. 
In other words, the one who lays out the stars of Pleiades and Orions is the one who moves the seasons along. In fact, if you go back to Genesis, what does it say that the sun, moon, and stars are for? For the times and seasons. Okay, so what do we see here? He's the God of change, turning spring into summer and summer into fall and fall into winter. And then notice, who turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night. Right, that's the sun cycle. Look at the next one. Who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. That's the rain cycle. What do all of these have in common? They're change. Right? And then notice here it says, The Lord is his name, and then verse 9, Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. What do we see here? Change. Right? Here is a fortress. It's strong, strong, it's stable, it's protected, it's gone. God is the God of change. You see, that's the significance of Bethel historically. Bethel is the place where Jacob meets with God. In fact, Jacob gives it its name. After seeing this vision of a ladder descending from heaven and angels ascending and descending upon it and hearing in a very difficult time of his life, I am going to bless you and through your descendants fulfill the promises of Abraham. A difficult time in his life because Jacob is on the run because he's tried to take that blessing for himself through deception and now his brother wants to kill him. Now remember, a good part of that blessing involves actually inheriting the stuff of his father and he's left that behind. He is so poor, his bed is a rock in the desert. And God comes and he speaks to him and he drastically changes his circumstances. But if you know the story of Jacob, Jacob is still Jacob and remains Jacob for a long time. But what's interesting is after years and years, when he does return, meets and reconciles with Esau and resettles in the land, God appears to him at Bethel again. And he says, no longer shall you be Jacob, but you shall be Israel. Jacob encounters God at Bethel, the house of God, and he becomes Israel. The first complaint that uh, Amos is making about the people here is that they have a religion without change. They show up an unjust and wicked people. They sing hymns about the God who changes things and they leave unchanged, still unjust and still wicked. Now, look at how this plays out in verse 10. They hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. The gate is the place of community justice. If your neighbor has been taking advantage of you by moving you know, the, the marker between your property and his, or by stealing your water or f- filling up your, your wells with dirt, you would go to the gate and appeal to the elders of the city for justice. But these people hate those who call them out in the gate. Here's the problem. Although sometimes God speaks to us still quiet voice style, right, and just brings conviction, the primary way that God works through change is through other people, right? What they hate is confrontation of their wickedness, but confrontation is built into the model. If they are walking into worship and leaving unchanged, it is because they either don't believe they need change or they refuse to. And here he says, 
God desires to change you. And this is important. The problem here is not, woe to you, Israel, because you are not perfect, and God is. It's, woe to you, Israel, because you think that you know God, and yet you're still the same. And this is the God who changes, who makes Jacob into Israel. And yet, when his tool for change, confrontation, you know, uh, the witness of others, the justice system that Israel has set up, when it's used, you hate it, you abhor it, you evade it. As you see, look at verse 11. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him. Okay, and so they're taking advantage of people, and that's why they hate the justice system. And so he says, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. Okay, in other words, change will happen. And just like Jacob, first God changed his circumstances, and then he changed his character. Here Israel refuses to have their character changed, so God will change their circumstances. And it's worth pointing out here, having a house of hewn stone right, where every stone has been cut and shaped, again, speaks of wealth. And we see here that this wealth is directly taken out of, you know, the life of the poor. So he says, you'll make houses, but you won't live in them. You'll plant new vineyards, but you won't get to enjoy them. Verse 12, for I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. Israel doesn't seem to know that, but God does. And that's the nature of a relationship with God is that God comes to our life, lays fingers on things, and says these things need to change. And again, because God's interest is not in finding a perfect people, but perfecting a people. His interest is not in punishing sinners, but delivering them from it. That is what we should expect. And if you're going to be in a relationship with the living God, you should anticipate him laying fingers on things that he desires to change. God knows how many are our transgressions and, yet, and how great are our sins. And yet, what do we find in Amos? We find warnings. We find invitations. Seek me and live. For the wages, the Bible says, of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Right? God, he's standing here wanting to change them. And they refuse to be changed. Okay? They have a religion. But it's not the religion of Bethel. It's not the religion of their fathers. It's not the religion of Jacob, because that would be a religion that brought change. Continues here, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Okay, and so here, even the wise bite their tongue and don't get involved. Then notice another seek in verse 14. Seek good and not evil. The last time it was seek the Lord and live. And now it's seek good and not evil that you may live. Do you see how there's a correlation there? And we've seen it over and over again between knowing God and doing justice. Between a real relationship with the living God and the way that we treat other human beings. This is consistent in the prophets. Seek good and not evil that you may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. Now, unlike the last passage, 
This one doesn't contain Gilgal or Bethel or Beersheba, but actually it does. And here's why. It says here that the Lord will be with you. Now, if you go back and you read in Genesis 21, um, Abraham is having some confrontation with Abimelech, a local ruler, and they come to an agreement because Abraham basically says, hey, you've wronged me and your servants have taken my wells. And he said, I didn't know anything about that. Let's get that fixed. But the first thing that Abimelech says to him is, I have discovered, Abraham, that God is with you. And so let's be on good terms. And interestingly enough, in that passage is when Abraham titles the place Beersheba, Beersheba, which means seven sheep, okay? Because that's the covenant exchange that happens in that chapter. But Abraham is identified there as the one who God is with. He is the God of Beersheba, okay? But the problem here with Beersheba today is that it's a religion without humility. As it says here, it says, seek good and not evil that you may live, and so the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have said. Apparently, God be with you, or maybe God with us had become an anthem of Beersheba. And that makes sense, right? That's the blessing that Abimelech even sees in Abraham. And so we, as the children of Abraham, we have the same blessing. God is with us. But hold on a minute. Seek good and not evil. You say God is with you, but as you are. And so notice how God is identified there in verse 14. And so the Lord God of hosts. That word there for host means a host of soldiers. It means the God of armies. Okay? And when we sing a mighty fortress, the Martin Luther hymn, and it says Lord Sabaoth, that's the same idea here, the God of armies. Okay? And notice how he repeats it. He says in verse 15, Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord. Why does he choose this title? He's not the God who is with us. He is the God of armies. I think the point that he is making here is that they have forgotten the significant transcendence of God. They are on friendly terms with God, but not in a good way. There's an occasion in the book of Joshua. Joshua's just entered into the land, and he goes to look out on Jericho, the central pin of all of the land of Canaan, this big fortified city. And as he's going out to spy it out by himself, he sees a man armed with a sword, and he pulls his own sword, and he asks this question. He says, are you for us, Israel, or against us? And the man says, no. He says, but I am the Lord, or I am the commander of the Lord's armies. Okay. And so you go, wait a minute. Isn't God with Israel? Isn't he the one who's going to bring the victory? Isn't that the whole reason why they're in Canaan? Yes. But it still doesn't simplify that question where Joshua can say, you soldier, are you for us? No. If anything, I am the commander of the Lord's army, not you, Joshua. Right? The question can never be, is God on our side? It has to be, are we on his? And the problem with Amos' people is that they believe that God is on their side 
and yet they are, again, taking advantage of the poor, the orphan, the widow. A group of people that the Bible constantly proclaims God is on the side of. He is the defender of the widow. He is the father to the fatherless, to the orphan. He is the defender of the poor. Those are the ways that God describes himself in the Old Testament. And so, if you find yourself in opposition to that crowd, you are against the God who is for them. And that's the problem that Amos's people have here. They have a religion, but there's no humility. Jesus, if you will, in our terms, is, are their homeboy, right? They're very comfortable and friendly. And again, we should recognize that God loves people. And so we should have no problem with the image of God reaching and placing his arm around us. But we should be careful about the idea of us doing the opposite and placing our arm around him. Okay. Because it is, again, easy to fool ourselves. And guess what happens when you claim that God is your homeboy? Suddenly, you have you know, the, define, the divine defense. God is on our side. So anyone who opposes us, opposes God. But in this case, God's opposition, the one who's going to send in his armies as the Lord of hosts, right? God here is going to be their enemy. Again, not because God hates Israel, but because they won't repent. Notice verse 16 again. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing. And in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning, and to wailing those are skilled in lamentation. Okay, and so everybody's called a day off because the funeral's that big, because they need that many pallbearers, because they need more musicians, you know, to lament. In all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. He will be God with them. But because of who they are, God with them is bad news and not good news. Okay. In fact, normally I will pass through your midst. Like we hear that and we think of the tail end of the story of Exodus when, when Moses wants to see God. And he says, I'll pass by your midst. Right? We, we think of Isaiah who has this vision of God in his throne room in Isaiah, counters, uh, Isaiah 6. There are these encounters with God that we have in Scripture, and they all end the same way with people on their faces, right? Humility, and sometimes even just outright fear. Think of Peter. Peter has one of these encounters with Jesus. Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, and there's a crowd that he wants to teach, but they're pressing against him, and the waves of the Sea of Galilee are behind him, and he sees Peter there, and he says, row me out in your boat. And Peter's stuck in the boat as Jesus addresses the crowd, which I think is Jesus' way of having a captive audience. Right? Peter can't escape. And we're not told what Jesus says to the crowd. But after he dismisses the crowd, he turns to Peter and he says, hey, did you catch any fish this morning? He said, no, I didn't have any luck. He said, throw your net in. And Peter plays along, pulls in this tremendous catch. And what happens? He falls on his face in the boat, and says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Humility. He recognizes who God is, and in light of who Jesus is, he recognizes who he is. That's missing from Israel. 
There's no humility. Only the self-righteous pride that says everything is fine. God is on our side. Verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Right? This is the encounter of encounters. When, if you will, God walks the earth. He says, why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went out of the house and leaned his hand against a wall and a serpent bit him. So what he says here is there's this anticipation for the coming judgment, for the day when God will come and bring judgment. They're all excited about it. They're happy about it. They're talking about it. And he says, why? It's not a good day, but a bad day. And I think we can read this two ways. One is for you, right? As you are right now, you are on the wrong side of God's justice. And this is something Jesus talked about quite a lot, about the surprise ending that came when he returns again, when the people who thought they were aligned with Jesus were clearly not. When those would be divided into sheep and goats so many times, he expresses warning about people who were comfortable with the coming judgment. But also, it's most likely here that the day of the Lord in Amos' day spoke of a day of judgment on the nations. And when we look at how God speaks of the day of the Lord, he does speak of his wrath, his righteous anger, his justice, but he also speaks compassionately. And just like he does Israel here, he says live and not death. Right? Jesus says, I did not come to condemn the world because the world is already condemned. But I came so that the world might be saved. Right? The judgment is all-inclusive. But so is God's invitation of salvation. I once read that a man who never did become a Christian... Um, who had told a reporter that D.L. Moody was the only Christian evangelist he ever respected. And he said, the reason is because, although I don't believe in hell, I know D.L. Moody does, and he never talks of it without weeping. Right? That was D.L. Moody in the midst of his invitation. The day of the Lord for him was, a, was compassionate. It was reflected in Jesus as he enters in Jerusalem, weeping. Jerusalem, how often I sent to you the prophets but you were unwilling and because you did not know the day of your visitation. Judgment is coming, but he didn't, you know, writhe his hands together and cackle at the possibility. He wept. I think that's implied here as well. And notice he says in verse 19, it's inescapable, and he uses this little parable here, right? As if a man is running from a lion and he gets away from the lion and he turns a corner and there's a bear. Right? It's like our modern um, proverb, out of the fire and into the frying pan. And it may say or there, halfway through verse 19, or went into the house, or an and in the Hebrew here. It's the same particle. Okay? I think it reads a lot stronger and. And so you escape the bear by getting into your house and you close the door and you're catching your breath and resting against the wall and a snake bites you. Right? It's the inevitability, it's the inescapability of judgment here um, that should be primary. He finishes in verse 20, Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not gloom with no brightness in it? Let me remind you just to put a point on it. That John becomes the prophet of the judgment. 
right? The book of Revelation is full of horrors. It is significantly dark. And when he gets to the end of it, the language that he uses is, even so, come Lord Jesus. It is a day of darkness and not light. And it is the darkness before the dawn, and that's true. But the proper attitude, the attitude that God himself has, even so. And then finally here in chapter 5, he focuses on Gilgal. He says, I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Lastly, here we have a religion without worship. And that might be a weird thing to say because we have the primary features of ancient worship and the primary features of modern worship both here. Right? There's lots of sacrifices going on. Again, this is a religious people who love the religious practices. And not only that, but notice verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs and the melody of your harps. I will not listen. This is full of music. And these, this is not you know, some sort of a hootenanny. Every one of these songs is praising the God of Israel, rejoicing in his holiness, you know, but he rejects them. Why? Because like I said, it's a religion without worship. And clearly here, the point is not that there's anything wrong with songs of praise, let alone the sacrifices that God himself prescribed. It's that in and of themselves, they are inefficient. That's why it says in the New Testament, you know, after Jesus comes and he is fully and completely our sacrifice, and we put away the whole sacrificial system, but that doesn't remove sacrifice from our lives. And so Paul says in Romans, I beg you, therefore, brothers and sisters, because of the mercy of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, all that you are, which he calls our reasonable act of worship. Their lives were not an act of worship, and that made all of the rest of their worship irrelevant. Now, like I said, this one touches Gilgal, and you go, how do you know that? Gilgal is the place where Israel enters the land crossing the Jordan under the tutelage of Joshua. And the first thing they do in pagan territory, in foreign territory, in enemy territory, with Jericho just across the next hill, the first thing they do is two things. One, they circumcise all the men, which is bad military strategy. Okay. All you have to do is go back to Genesis 35 and look at the rape of Dinah when Shechem tries to do that so that they can intermarry with the Jews and Jacob's sons take advantage of them while they're still healing and slaughter the whole city. Okay. But that's the first thing they do is they enter into the second, uh, promised land. The second thing is they observe Passover, which is also a weird thing to do in enemy territory. But it is a place of worship. It's a place of consecration. Right? Before they go any further, there's some things that need to happen. They need to be circumcised, which is, uh, according to Deuteronomy, not really about a man's penis. It's about everybody's hearts. That's where the circumcision matters. 
Passover is a recognition that the God who delivered them out of Egypt and made them his people is going to go before them, right? It's, it's a focusing, it's an intentional thing. Where do we find it here? We find it in verse 24. But let justice roll down. Roll down is the word Gilgal. Gilgal is the place where they rolled away, according to Joshua, the sins of the wilderness because they hadn't been circumcising their children and they hadn't been keeping the Passover. And so in the same way here, Israel needs to roll away their sins, specifically by letting justice Gilgal down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Look at verse 25. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offering during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? The sacrificial system doesn't really get up and running until they get into the land. Not that there weren't sacrifices, but they didn't have their own cattle and herds, and they didn't have all of the grain offerings because they weren't planting anything, right? And so the point is here, when you started in relationship with me, was the defining characteristic of it sacrifice? No, in fact, before they build the tabernacle and dedicate it, they haven't done any of that as they're moving around in the wilderness. And then on top of that, look at verse 26. He says, You shall take up Sikuth, your king, and Kikun, your star god, your images that you made for yourself, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. This can be a hard verse to understand, but clearly it refers to idols here. And the question becomes, is he suggesting here that they worshipped these idols instead of bringing sacrifices to God in the wilderness? Like even in the very beginning of their relationship with God, they were already idolatrous? Could be. As the covenant is being given and Moses is up the mountain, they build a golden calf, right? That wouldn't be surprising. But the way that Stephen, one of the proto-deacons, the before-deacon deacons of Acts chapter 6, the way that Stephen handles this passage is basically not only did the tabernacle come after we were worshipers of God, but also once we had the tabernacle, there's a whole history of idolatry to deal with. And remember that because this is the northern tribes, all of their worship is idolatrous because they are not going to Jerusalem. They are not using the Levitical priest and they are worshiping primarily at Dan and Bethel where these two golden calves have been set up. These are the things that he's addressing here. And so again, notice, there's a correlation between justice and what we would more traditionally call worship. The two go hand in hand. And so the criticism of Amos here is that they say it's, you know, the religion of their fathers. It's old-time religion. But it's not. Because it doesn't bring about change. Because it doesn't involve humility. And it doesn't involve the true worship that God is actually after. Continuing in chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see, and go from there to Hamath the Great, and go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Okay. Again, he tries to get their attention, and this is the way he does it. He says, if prosperity is a sign of righteousness, have you been to the capital city of the Philistines lately? You're doing pretty darn well. 
right? These people that they believed are the enemies of God. These people that they believed were idolaters who didn't know the true and living God and had been persecuting his people are living a prosperous life. And so they cannot say, because we are prosperous, we are righteous, and at the same time say that they are wicked, right? They, uh, their argument shoots them in the foot. He continues here, verse 4, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flocks and calves from the midst of the stall. Again, all of these have to do with wealth. The, the average Israelite would have slept on a mat, you know, in a one-room house with a staircase outside that went up to the roof. But here these people have beds with ivory, right, settings and a couch, okay? They're uh, large and well-furnished houses. When it says they eat lambs from the flocks and calves from the midst of the stall, this is something that we only guess on, but we assume that most Jews only ate meat at the major festivals and when they brought their sacrifices. It was a luxury. But here, this is just the daily menu of the wealthy, okay? And again, the problem here is not about the wealth, it's about how they generated it and what they do with it. Notice verse 5, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music. There's a very productive Israeli art scene and these are the patrons, right? They're involved, they're cultured, they're writing music and they associate that with David. But it's not like David, is it? Verse 6, who drink wine in bowls, which is like saying, you know, XXL Slurpee cups, right? It's, it's about size here. It's abundance. They anoint themselves with the finest oils, but they're not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Okay? They're completely cut off from the pain of those around them, and most importantly, the spiritual condition of Israel. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Verse 8, the Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob, and I hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Now, it may be here that the pride of Jacob is a reference to these worship centers, right? Because, because calling the temple the pride of Israel sounds like something the Jews would say, and we have similar language. It also may be here that what he abhors is not this false worship center that everybody loves, that they hold up as being, you know, an icon of their religious character, but it may just be the fact that they are a proud people, right? Unimpeachable in their minds before God, and then lastly here, notice because it's connected with strongholds, I abhorred the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. The idea is probably one of security, right? They feel untouchable, safe. And he says, and I will deliver up the city and all that's in it. And verse nine, if 10 men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? He shall say no. Okay, so the idea here is that the whole family is wiped out so that a distant cousin has to come and, t and prepare the bodies for burial. And when they check with the servants and say, didn't anyone survive? No, no one. Okay. 
And then we get probably one of the hardest sentences that we have to encounter tonight. It says, and he, the person in the house, shall say, silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. Now you can look all you want in verses 9 and 10. You won't see the name of the Lord. And so the question becomes, what's the point that Amos is making here? It may be a recognition or that at this point, they're finally going to connect the dots between judgment and God. This is the silence of an encounter with God. This is the silence of awe. This is the silence of humility that was missing. But it may, it may be something else. To be honest, um, in the multiple commentaries that I read today, nobody seemed very convinced of their own position. It's a difficult thing here. But it is clearly a recognition of how bad things are and how thorough the judgment will be. Verse 11, For behold, the Lord commands... And the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? Okay. Let's look at this little illustration here. Do horses run on rocks? You don't send a horse out into a rocky field and, you know, get it up to a full canter. It's, it's dangerous. You want the open and safe places, you know. And then second it says... Um, does one plow there with oxen? The word there isn't there. Um, it may be, and in some, some of our old manuscripts, it's does one plow the sea with oxen, which is a clear no, right? You don't send oxen out into the ocean. It's a, it's a place that doesn't make any sense. But it also may be that what was originally written here is does one plow there with oxen, meaning that same field full of rocks, is that the field you choose and go, this is where I'm going to plant a vineyard? No. He says, but you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. So he says, you would never plow a rocky field. You would never run a horse in a field, but you've taken the things that should be sweet and you've labeled them poison. Or maybe, but you've taken the things that you should enjoy and have replaced them with things that I, you know, abhor. He says, verse 13, you who rejoice in Lodabar and who say, have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? You can read about this in 2 Kings 14. Just a few years before Amos, they had um, recaptured some of the places that had been taken from them by their enemies, specifically the Philistines, if I remember right. And it includes these two cities. And so how did the people of Amos respond? They looked at that as being a personal victory that they had brought about. And he says here, you who rejoice in Lodabar, and most likely he's making a play on the name, what Lodabar means is nothing. It's nothing. You rejoice in Lodabar, but it's nothing. That's what it means. It's not a victory, it's nothing. It's nothing big. And then he says, have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim, which means the two horns. And remember, throughout the Old Testament, a horn is a sign and a symbol of power. And so they say, aren't we the ones who have the two horns, right, who captured the power of the Philistines for ourselves? Aren't we the powerful ones? And the clear idea here is no. For behold, verse 14, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Labo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah, which is basically just from north to south. Two little cities you claimed and took back. I'm going to take the whole land away from you. 
God says. Now, we'll close there for the night. But let me close with this. The words of Amos are strong. They're fierce. In some places, they're not very um, politically correct. They're offensive. But it's all to shake them out of their religious apathy. Because they do not realize that although that they, although they have claimed to be God's people and claim to be worshipers of God, God is about to wash, their hand, wash his hands of them. And he sends Amos to wake them up and call his people to repentance. And again, remember, this is not God castigating the wicked because they won't do better. This is an invitation to sinners to repent, to be forgiven, and to be changed. It's amazing. The patience of God in the book of Amos. 30 years in advance, he says, destruction is coming. Do you remember, do you remember what it is when Jonah gets to pick the timeline? 40 days, Nineveh. That's all I'm going to give you. 40 days and then the judgment. But God sends Amos decades in advance. And clearly, as we read this today, its significance is that we should search ourselves, that we shouldn't settle for a worship that leaves us unchanged, unchallenged, that leaves us comfortable, that pats us on the back, that has nothing to do with the living God. Let's pray. God, it's so easy to distance ourselves from these things, refer to those knucklehead Jews who just don't get it. But we know that the word of God was written down for our instruction, according to the Apostle Paul. And your word is full of warnings just like this. And so I pray, Lord, that you would just cleanse our understanding, that we would see our hearts the way you see our hearts that we would see our worship the way you see our worship. I pray specifically, Lord, that you would make us sensitive to the critiques and confrontation and loving invitation of our brothers and sisters and even of our neighbors and our critics. At one point, he calls the Egyptians and the Philistines as witnesses in the jury. Lord, let us just be able to see, spare us from our blindness and we thank you, Lord, that when you reveal sin, you don't do it to condemn, but to invite us to lay it down, to be forgiven, and to live. Help us to be a people who live. In Jesus' name, amen.